Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. And this is week number two with Mike Meharry. And we are going to talk in this episode about the Bill of Rights. Last week, uh, we talked about the Constitution, the preamble, some general clauses that people, you know, totally misuse and abuse and why libertarians don't always get the Constitution right. So Mike is here to talk to us about the Bill of Rights. How do we misunderstand it? What are some better ways to understand it? And I hear he has some things to say to libertarians that they just might not like. So Mike, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me. So this is like the Tom Woods, you know, he's been doing the, like he did Bob Murphy week and he's done Walter Block week. This is like Mike Meharry month on the Libertarian Christian. Mike podcast. Meharry math, half month. <laughs> half month, yeah, <laughs> by week. Anyway. Yeah, well, if if I had a whole, if I had a whole like week worth of episodes, I'd probably have a Mike Meharry week. That would be fun. In fact, this might be the, the number appearance that would constitute a week for you. I think this could be your might be your fifth appearance. It might be your fourth. I don't remember. I don't either. But we'll just we'll just do that. Yeah. So the Bill of Rights, I didn't actually realize had its own preamble. I know. Isn't that weird? Most people don't know that. Yeah. Well, and you'd think I know because I've actually read the Constitution. I've got a hundred pocket copies with Cato Institute written on the back of them, um, or some other Libertarian Institute <laughs> written on the back of them. You'd think I would have noticed this. But, I wonder uh, if they have it, though, because a lot of the copies of the Constitution that you see do not include the preamble for the Bill of Rights. Really? No. I've, I've seen many, many, I've seen more copies without it than with. So why would most of them not include the preamble? Why do most of them not include the preamble? That's a really good question. I guess people don't think it matters. I don't know. I have no idea why, but I think it's extremely important because it's just like the preamble of the Constitution. It kind of gives you an idea of what is the purpose of this thing. And when you actually read the preamble, it becomes very clear that it was meant to provide additional restrictions to ensure that we understand that there are additional restrictions on federal power. And it's interesting to go back to the ratification debates because there were a lot of people in support of the Constitution who said, we don't need a Bill of Rights because it's inherent in the structure of the Constitution. As we've talked about in the last episode, the federal government was delegated only a few specific powers. It's not allowed to do things that are outside of those powers. So since, for instance, there is no power delegated to the federal government to regulate the press, it is implicit in the document that that power doesn't exist. So some people said there's no reason to have a Bill of Rights and say that explicitly. Now, there were a number of people who wisely said, maybe we shouldn't you know, trust this interpretation. And so they insisted on a Bill of Rights as part of the condition of ratification. So they are farther restrictions on federal government power. That's what the preamble tells us. And it's very important to understand that because people have taken it to now mean that it applies to the states. And that was something that was never intended. So basically, there were people who were saying it's not enough for it to be sort of inherently, you know, it's not obvious enough that the Constitution is about enumerated powers rather than just 
Yeah, like they didn't want to leave the wrong impression. Would that be one way to put it? Yeah, exactly. And then I think there were some people that were wise enough to know that some of the powers could be construed to maybe have some, you know, maybe some incidental powers would creep in there, some necessary and proper powers that might end up being used to regulate certain things. For instance, the Second Amendment prohibits the uh, infringement on the right to keep and bear arms. Well, you know, there's no power to do that within the Constitution. So you could argue that uh, you don't even need the Second Amendment to prohibit the federal government from regulating guns. But it could possibly be construed under the Commerce Clause that they could regulate it within the trade of guns. So they wanted to make it very explicit that under no condition can the federal government, even when doing a legitimately exercised delegated power, uh, it can't infringe on the right to keep and bear arms. So uh, as James Madison put it, what can it hurt? We're going to add these in to make it perfectly clear that the federal government cannot do these things. And then we're going to tag the Ninth Amendment on there as well to make it clear that just because we didn't list everything that the federal government can't do, there's a lot of other things it can't do and other rights it can't infringe on. So, you know, and it was... To prevent misconstruction, is the word, misconstruation, there's a word for you, misconstruction of the document. Language is fluid, Mike. We can, we can yes. just, you know, make up words as we go. Sure. <laughs> so why is it called the Bill of Rights? Uh, I think you, you indicate in the book that that's not quite the best name for it because it doesn't quite communicate what we understand today. Yeah, that's what they've always called it. And, you know, I don't know where that, I mean, they were using that term uh, earlier, even before the federal constitution was ratified, state constitutions had bills of rights, and that's where the idea came from. I think it would be more accurate to call it a bill of restrictions because it. this is the misunderstanding that I think a lot of the general public has. They'll talk about, well, I have constitutional rights as if the constitution gave them those rights. Well, the constitution doesn't give you rights, and it was never understood to give you rights. The Constitution prohibits the federal government from infringing on rights that you are already understood to have in the first place. So, you know, you look at the idea of the, in the Declaration of Independence that our rights are granted by God. Um, you know, people that aren't Christians will bristle at that. So then you can say, simply say, well, natural rights, they are inherent in our humanity. And the federal government cannot infringe on those rights. The federal government doesn't give you the rights. You don't have the right to protect yourself. You don't have the right to speak freely. You don't have freedom of conscience because some guys wrote it down on a piece of paper. You have those rights because it's inherent in your humanity. It's because it's the way God created us. And, and it's, you know, logically flows from the idea of, of self-ownership and personhood. Uh, so when people say constitutional rights, you know, we talked about in the last episode, some things that annoy me, you know, the idea of a, of a America being a nation or the supremacy clause. Well, this is, annoys me with the Bill of Rights when people say, I have constitutional rights. No, you have rights and the Constitution prohibits the federal government from infringing on them. Okay, so we could argue, like if somebody were on here saying they have rights, they would say, well, Mike, I'm saying the same thing. It's just that I'm declaring that the government or that the Constitution protects those rights. Like the act of saying I have rights isn't really necessarily a, an argument for saying that, that the Constitution gave me those rights. Yeah, but I think that's not, I don't think that's what people mean. I think they believe that the document itself gives them those rights. And if you got rid of the Second Amendment, that you wouldn't have the right to keep mm -hmm. them bare arms anymore. And that's not true. Fundamentally, you still have that right. And, you know, the Bill of Rights, and, and you have to think about it in broader terms. You know, the Bill of Rights... Let's think of somebody who lives in England, okay? Mm -hmm. 
do they have the right to defend themselves? Just inherently. Sure. I, I think as believers yeah. in natural rights, we would say yes. Well, the Bill of Rights has nothing to do with them. You know, in fact, their government <laughs> right. says otherwise. So that, that kind of makes the point of this Bill of Rights is something that's particular to this sphere of government. And it does something very particular in this American government system. And that is it restrains the power of the federal government to infringe on these given rights. I think that's it's, – it's an important – you know, we talk about sloppy thinking. It's sloppy mm-hmm. to think of it as the government's giving you rights because then you start to – I don't, you know, it just leads down bad roads. We want people to be precise in their thinking. We want people to understand I have rights because God gave them to me because I am a human being. And mm-hmm. we also want to understand that there are prohibitions in the Constitution that restrains the federal government from infringing on those rights. That's how it protects you. It doesn't really protect the rights. It protects you from the federal government. It doesn't protect you from the British government. It doesn't protect you from the UN. It doesn't even protect you from the states. And I guess we'll probably get into that in a minute. But it does protect us from the federal government. Okay. So then it's probably also important for us to note that we're talking about a specific kind of rights that it actually is protecting because, you know, we we hear a lot today about, you know, the right to healthcare, the right to a living wage, the right to the right to this, the right to that because, you know, we're all humans and we need to, you know, we need to survive or whatever. Um, those, those types of arguments are made and so you you could say that well like, oh, well then because those are natural rights, or some sort of right that people claim that isn't granted in the Constitution, therefore, they, you know, the government should grant that. So we're not talking about positive rights here. Correct. Right. We're talking about, we're talking yeah. about, I think, things that did you would call inherent. And I think it's important when you talk about rights, the, the distinction that you can make is that a right has to be universal. So every single human being, for it to be a true right in, this, in the true sense of the word, every human being has to possess it. And it can't be dependent on somebody else to give it to you. In other words, a right to health care, that implies that a doctor is obligated to make you have your right, you know, to, to make that facilitate that to happen. A natural right requires nothing other than restraint. So you think about something like the right of free speech, the right to defend yourself, the right to worship in the way that you that you see fit, the right to assemble. Those things only require that the government not interfere, not stop you from exercising that right. They don't require, and that's the difference between a positive right. A positive right requires the government to do something. And then we also have other other rights uh, that are, are more procedural in the Constitution that flow out of a broader uh, idea of rights. So something like the right to due process. This is part of the legal system that you have a right to jury trial and that you have a right to not self-incriminate. These all flow out of a natural right of the idea of, of due process, uh, you know, kind of a broader thing, but they're very mm-hmm. specific things that the government does have to do. And, and so that's a little bit of a different kind of thing, but they still flow out of this idea of a, of a negative right. Okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about the specific amendments to uh, to the Constitution in the Bill of Rights, and you'd think that there's only like you know based on how much we talk about certain amendments that there's only like three of them, like the first, the second, and the fourth, and right. you know if you're a libertarian, you do talk about the tenth, and so there, there's more than that, but we are going to talk about mostly the ones that I just mentioned, just because right. like they're the ones people are talking about, right? Sure, uh, we don't really bring up you know alcohol prohibition. Um, right. too much anymore. So, you know, there's a lot of things in the Bill of Rights that 
you know, libertarians are fond of, you know, promoting, of course, like, sure. you know, the right to bear arms, the right to be free from search and seizure, the, you know, free speech, mm-hmm. all kinds of things, right? But where do libertarians go astray in getting too excited about what the Bill of Rights actually can constitutionally protect? Well, okay, so this is going to get into a big can of worms. Um, well, it's okay. Well, I'm trying to think of where the best place to, to yeah. kind of start. Let's let's start with the basic. Let's go back to the preamble, okay? We talked about the fact that the preamble makes it very clear that the Bill of Rights is a restriction on federal power, okay? The key word there is federal power. There was nobody during the ratification era, and when I talk about ratification era, I'm talking about the ratification of the Bill of Rights, which you know was within the years after the Constitution was ratified. Mm-hmm. Nobody was saying that this applied to the states. These were restrictions on federal power. There wasn't anybody who was suggesting that the federal courts could go to Virginia and uh, regulate whatever gun law that Virginia came up with. Those were left to the states, and every state constitution has its own Bill of Rights. That's why state constitutions have their own Bill of Rights, because the federal Bill of Rights was not intended to apply to the states. There are separate spheres of government. You have a state constitution that creates a state government that has a Bill of Rights that restricts the actions of that state government. And you have a federal government with a constitution and a Bill of Rights that restricts the actions of that federal government. We live in a world today where the federal government is so kingly that it now polices all of the states. So really, the states don't even need a Bill of Rights anymore because we've applied the federal Bill of Rights to the states. And this has happened through a process known as incorporation, the incorporation doctrine, and it flows out of the 14th Amendment. This is the longest chapter in the book, I believe, because it is the hardest thing for modern Americans to wrap their heads around, even people who are well-versed in in the Constitution and, and these types of issues. The 14th Amendment, people will argue, was intended to constitutionalize the Bill of Rights and federalize it on the states or incorporate it on the states. This is not the intention of the 14th Amendment. If you go back and look at the development and the ratification of that amendment, this was not intended. It would have never been ratified if it was understood to be that way. This is something that the Supreme Court concocted about 50 years after the Bill of Rights was ratified. Um, So this is a court-invented doctrine, the incorporation doctrine. But through that, we now have a situation where everything is a federal case, right? So if um, the uh, local government tries to shut down a porn store in your city, it all of a sudden becomes a federal free speech case. Never intended under the under the system of government that we have. That should be something that is ha- handled under the free speech clause in the Constitution of Pennsylvania, in your case, or the Constitution of Florida in mine. This is where I think libertarians go way off the rails because a lot of libertarians like this incorporation doctrine because they think it can impose liberty on the United States. If we can use these Bill of Rights clauses to get the federal government to give us our gun rights and to and to force the states not to pass bad gun laws and to force the states to not pass bad uh, search and seizure laws. And I get it in principle, but when you centralize it, here's the problem. When the federal government does something really, really bad and the Supreme Court says, uh, yes, the federal government can take your AR-15 and the state government 
can take your AR-15 too, that now applies to every single state in the United States. Whereas if you had just pursued that under your state constitution, you're only going to screw over the people in your own state. Again, the beauty of decentralization. You have to understand that 99% of the things that the Supreme Court is going to tell you is going to be bad. It's going to infringe on your liberty. It's going to expand federal power. The federal judiciary is part of the federal government. You cannot trust the federal judiciary as part of the federal government to limit the federal government. It's a dumb way of thinking. And unfortunately, most libertarians are caught up in this idea. And there are people yelling at their podcasting device right now. Mike, you're wrong. We have to have the federal courts. They're going to save us because we're going to get great Supreme Court justices and they're going to impose liberty. Think about that for a minute. You're imposing liberty. No, no, no. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. And and the fundamental problem here, this is why I get so worked up about this, is because you are centralizing the system. And I said in the first episode that we did, centralization of power is the biggest threat to liberty. So you may get a victory here and there. Supreme Court may give you what you want one out of 10 times. Nine out of 10 times, you're going to get utter crap. But you get that one victory, and we're going to say, yay, the Supreme Court, woo, we got freedom now. <laughs> but you've centralized authority. And now you've given it the power to do those other nine awful things that it's going to do. And, you know, perfect example, a lot of people think the Supreme Court got rid of asset forfeiture. Uh, it was a case, I think it was last year, might have been 2018. I can't remember the precise date. But, you know, basically it applied the Eighth Amendment of excessive fines and excessive punishment. It applied that to the states through the incorporation doctrine. And everybody goes, oh, great, asset forfeiture's over now. No, all the court said was that it gave the authority for the court to determine whether or not a given asset forfeiture thing happens to fall under the excessive penalty clause in the Eighth Amendment. What do you think the federal government's actually going to do with that? Do you really think mm. it's going to say, no, I can't take the, the, your local cops can't take your car? Probably not. So basically, mm -hmm. it's made it into a federal case where everything will go to the federal level. You've centralized power. You have undercut liberty in the long run, even if you get a decent opinion from a court now and again. I do not trust lawyers in black dresses who are federal employees to protect my liberty. I would, I would trust a elected politician at least a, a minuscule bit more because at least they're accountable to the voters. These judges are accountable to nobody other than their own political agenda. So I hate the incorporation doctrine and I hate the liberty enforcement squad in the libertarian world that thinks that the federal courts are the, are the key to victory because I think that's absolutely wrong and it's demonstrable if you look at what the courts have actually done over the past you know, 50 to 100 years. So you're saying basically it's like short run gain for long term, like loss of liberty is kind of the, the game there. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that anytime you are centralizing power, you're undercutting liberty. I mean, think about the notion of it a minute. We're going to trust five federally appointed judges effectively. I mean, there's nine of them, but it only takes five. We're going to trust these five guys and gals to protect our liberty and make us more free. Most people, if you said that about any other politician, they would say you were nuts. But suddenly when you start talking about courts, people are like, oh, all the courts are, are going to help us. The courts are the worst. If I could get rid of one branch of the government, I'd get rid of the courts. Okay, that's a whole other podcast. So I guess we can't go down <laughs> that rabbit hole. But that's, uh, wow, that, that's, pretty, that's pretty bold. I'm a bold man. Well, good. That, that's good. I mean, you, you kind of have to be to, 
to argue with people who are against what you're saying here, you know, like, and even to stand up against libertarians who are misusing, you know, the kind of power that, um, misusing power for the advancement of liberty in ways that, that are actually, you know, can and probably do end up being harmful in the end. So, uh, I think that's, that's a good voice to have. I mean, here's, here's the, here's the underlying reality, you know, to kind of, to kind of tie this in a little bow. In effect, we have a system of government that has been created through the Constitution. It's a decentralized system. It certainly isn't perfect. Uh, you know, in, in Libertopia, I would probably do something different. But it is much better than the system that we live in now, uh, where the federal government has so much power over our lives, where these small group of people, basically an oligarchy, controls everything that we do virtually. When you look at that system that created a decentralized platform, that created some jurisdictional competition. When you look at that, it provides an avenue for liberty. When you undercut that, then you are destroying what little framework for liberty that this government system actually gives us. Now, I get the argument that, you know, the Constitution is of no authority, you know, if you want to take the Spooner route, I I get that. You want to toss it all out. But if you want to play in the system as it was created, you are cutting off your own nose if you are Mm -hmm. undermining that system by taking it in directions that it was never intended to go. And this is the bottom line. I challenge anybody to show me otherwise. There was never an intention in the founding era to create a situation where the federal government polices the states. Madison proposed it and it was rejected. I don't think that's a good model and they rejected it for that very reason. This is the model that we now have with the incorporation of the Bill of Rights in the federal courts. Basically, the federal courts hold veto power over every single thing that a state does. Uh, And this is why we now have the federal government telling you you can't have a nativity scene in your city park. You know, so that's the ugly side of it. I would rather these things be decided at the local level. And people will say, well, Mike, what are you going to do when the state violates your rights? Because states are bad, too, and they'll violate your Well, yeah, they are. But the same argument happens. Well, what do you do when the federal government violates your rights? There's nobody to appeal to there. So just pretend like the federal government doesn't exist and stop it at the state level. <laughs> you know, deal with them. Because, yes, you're going to get bad outcomes at the state level, too. But if it gets really bad, you can move. Wow, there's so much we could go down that road of conversation. <laughs> what I don't want to do is run out of time on the Bill of Rights. <laughs> no, yeah, and, and I've just <laughs> so. I've just angered about two thirds of your audience. So. Oh no, no, that's but, good. But, um, but, so but I, will, can... I will extend that challenge. If anybody can show me anything that any of the anybody in the founding generation said that the federal government should police the states, I, I'd be welcome to see that evidence. It, it doesn't yeah, exist. Yeah, well, so. you know, listeners, you can send emails to rants to Mike Mahari at gmail.com. <laughs> right, there you go. <laughs> that's probably not an email. Um, although maybe should it should be. be, yeah, rant to Mike Meharry at, at Gmail. Okay. Yeah. So we, we should make that email and we'll just forward them all to you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're not doing that. Um, you know, one of the benefits of having you on this show, Mike, is that I can be a little sarcastic and you, you bring it right back. <laughs> oh, I, yeah. I, I, I speak sarcasm fluently. So let, let's talk about the second amendment because clearly that's a very important one to a lot of libertarians because of you know, the right to self-defense. Right. Um, is it is that amendment about the right to self-defense? Is it about the right to hunt? Is it about the right to fight against tyranny? What's 
what's the story on that? And and clearly, we're gonna have to deal with the militia thing. So I, you know, I think everybody who's listening to this, almost everybody who's listening to this, would kind of be on our side of what the Second Amendment protects. Um, and so, what maybe I'll ask you to do here is give them the <laughs> ammunition to fight back against the arguments that say, oh, it's only for militias and the National Guard. So right. you know, maybe you can end up there with, with that sort of defense. Yeah, so ultimately the Second Amendment is about the right to hunt politicians. <laughs> I'm not suggesting that this is something that you should necessarily do. And I'll be honest, as a Christian, I struggle with the idea of violent revolution. I'm not sure that it would ever be effective. Nevertheless, that was the whole purpose of the Second Amendment, in all seriousness, was to ensure that the populace would be armed and strong enough to fight off uh, a tyrannical government. That's the whole purpose. And, and it's very clear when you read the, the writings of those who are supporting the inclusion of the Second Amendment in the Bill of Rights uh, and even the debates over the militia early on in the ratification process, this is clearly was the point. There was a fear that the federal government could create a standing army, that it could impose tyranny, and they wanted to ensure that the people of the states had the means to resist uh, that type of overreach. Uh, you know, and you have to understand this is coming on the heels of the Revolutionary War. So they were very well aware of it could possibly be necessary to take up arms and fight off a tyrannical government. And this brings it to the whole idea of the militia, because that's the the left, that's their favorite def, you know, favorite argument against the Second Amendment. And well, it says right there, uh, because of the militia, you know, and it does talk about the militia. The first thing you have to understand is rules of construction. The fact that it mentions the militia doesn't change the operative clause, which is the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That word people is very intentional. It doesn't say the right of the people who are in the militia. But interestingly, the truth of the matter is that the militia was made up of basically every able-bodied male uh, at, at that time. So the idea was that here was the issue. The federal government had the ability to control the state militias to some degree in order to call them up in the event of, you know, Britain gets uppity again and invades. And there were some provisions in there for training and arming the militia. There were some fears that this power would allow the federal government to regulate firearms out, to say you can't have firearms in terms of regulating the militia because virtually every able-bodied male was in the militia. So the right to keep and bear arms is intimately connected with this idea of the people's militia, the people being the armed populace. Uh, the, the militia clause in no way negates the reality of what the Second Amendment was for. So in simplest terms, that word, do not infringe, is absolute. And Truthfully, other than the ability to arm the militia and regulate the training of the militia, there is no constitutional authority delegated for the federal government to regulate firearms, particularly within the borders of a state to begin with. So you could get rid of the Second Amendment and the federal government still wouldn't be uh, constitutionally authorized to do most of the gun control that it does today. So the question that I would have then is, do states have the right to prevent people from bearing arms? And the answer to that question is it depends. It depends on the provisions in the state constitution. Again, there is absolutely no evidence anywhere during the ratification of the Bill of Rights that anybody intended the Second Amendment to include the ability for the federal government to somehow regulate gun laws within the borders of a state. Now, that said, virtually every state 
has some provision in its state constitution protecting the right to keep and bear arms. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are some notable exceptions. California, New York, uh, I believe New Jersey lack any protections, maybe Illinois. So then that's where people get very upset with me when when you get back to that whole debate about incorporation. They say, well, those states don't protect you, so it has to be the federal government. And I would again come back, so you're going to undermine the entire constitutional structure so that you can have a gun. I would suggest that you need to get busy in your own state and ratify your state Mm -hmm. constitution to have that provision included. Or if it's that important to you, move out of that state. Uh, I think undermining the entire constitutional construct because you don't happen to like the way your state is operating is is probably dangerous to liberty in the long run. Well, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're like that those states are like anti them having guns. It might just be more work or effort for them to actually own them as opposed to, it's not like they're confiscating them per se. Right. I mean, I know some place, local places could do that, but I mean, I guess, you know, theoretically California could, could confiscate all firearms. Now, you know, then you get into the whole idea and, and maybe we can touch on this. It doesn't really per se deal with the bill of rights, but the whole idea of nullification, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the government can only do what the people will let the government do when you get down to it. So, yeah, I think even in a in a very left leaning state like California, they would have a very difficult time confiscating all firearms. You know, I mean, yeah. it's just uh, it's a very difficult proposition if the people aren't willing to comply with mm-hmm. a given mandate. So the the whole idea of military grade weapons and you know missiles, like you know, can I? You know, I've seen the whole like. Uh, the meme where people are like, people ask me if I believe in the right to bear arms or how 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 extreme am I? And it shows a fighter jet in his driveway, you know, and it's like, you know, I believe I can have whatever I want to defend myself and I get to define what that is. I mean, is there is there a limit to the federal government's ability to say you cannot have this kind of weapon? I mean, can someone have a tank with, with ammunition? I think so. Okay. But I think if you, I mean, you know, personally, I don't have a problem with somebody having a tank. And people do have tanks. I mean, that's that's the reality. People have fighter jets. The Usually where they'll go is, well, do you think your neighbor can have a nuclear weapon? Well, I don't think anybody should have a nuclear weapon. So. But if you want to get down to the actual constitutional uh, understanding, the idea of arms, there, there's actually a definition and there was an understanding. It's basically weapons that you can carry. And and that was kind of when it, when the prohibition is specifically any arm that you can carry. So, you know, submachine gun, absolutely. Shoulder-launched rocket launcher, yeah, that's an arm. Uh, fighter jet, not necessarily an arm under the constitutional understanding. So if you want to parse out the mm-hmm. uh, the the legal language, arms had yeah. a specific meaning uh, to keep and bear. It was literally right, something right. that you could carry. So if you're arguing with somebody on Facebook about it and they they sort of paint you out to be an extremist, like, well, under your interpretation, the Constitution will let you have a nuclear weapon, then you could say, well, whoa, 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 hold on. Like, you can kind of pause that and say, well, no, I'm not saying that because that there's right. this meaning to the word arms. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, okay. So what, one of the more, um, I, would, I guess I shouldn't even preface it that way, Another important amendment that is kind of important for today is the Fourth Amendment. Yeah. Have you, I'll just ask you, have you read Edward Snowden's book? I have it on my bookshelf. I've not gotten to it yet. Yeah, dude, you got to get to it. It is like amazing. I, at first I thought, am I really going to be interested in this? And then I started it and I was like hooked. Now I listened to it. Um, So maybe listening to it was easier or something. I don't know. But it really made me think a little bit more seriously about the whole idea of the surveillance state. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, that's 
only sort of tangentially related here to to the Fourth Amendment. So why is this an important amendment? Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because with my work at the 10th Amendment Center, surveillance has been the primary focus or one of my primary policy area focuses. So I'm pretty... I'm pretty up to speed on just how invasive and horrible the surveillance state is. And quite frankly, absolutely and utterly unconstitutional. Uh, everything that the federal government is doing today mirrors what the British government was doing to the colonists that led to the uh, idea of the Fourth Amendment to begin with. Back in that time, they had what were called general warrants. And it would essentially allow the holder to enter into any business or home to search for quote-unquote contraband. This was primarily to deal with smuggling. And uh, there were no limits to it. The holder could basically go anywhere they pleased, seize anything they wanted, uh, and it was transferable. So I could give it to you. <laughs> so this was the, the framework that the Fourth Amendment was developed under. And it was a very simple and, and I think common sense approach. If the government has a need to search for something, to fight crime, then it should be able to specifically say, hey, this is what we're looking for. This is the person that we're going to search. This is the specific place. This is not a pass to go anywhere you want into anybody's home and take anything. And so that was the framework. That was something that was very much feared by the, um, by the early Americans because of their experience during the pre-revolution era under the British rule. Uh, today, we have effectively a government that, at least from a digital standpoint, can go anywhere at once and grab any information at once and store it forever and use it however it wants to. The, the United States did a pretty decent job of protecting physical, tangible things you know, papers, uh, documents. Uh, most people would bristle at a FBI agent rifling through their mail without a warrant. But we allow it in the digital world, I guess, because we feel like it's something different. And it's absolutely mm -hmm. not. There is so much information that can be gathered yeah, on us. Yeah. And it's absolutely imperative that we get ahead of this because it's interesting. You go back to 1970, I think it was 75, Frank Church, Senator, had a, uh, a series of hearings on the growing surveillance state. And he said at that time that the surveillance state in place in the United States was powerful enough to impose total tyranny for the person who wielded it. Total tyranny. This is the 1970s before everybody was on cell phones, email, web, all of these things. Yeah, that today. was before personal computers were big. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, before they were little. Wait, so consider you know I mean? the power of the government that we have today. We know that the that the federal government is is spying on us because of what Edward Snowden showed us. And Congress has done nothing. They were warned 40 years ago. They've done absolutely nothing. Uh, it's imperative that we, as people who want to be free, start to get a handle on this and start insisting that we uh, reinstitute those protections because I, I think it's a dangerous and ugly road when you look at what a surveillance state looks like, particularly when it's coupled with a police state. So there is there are two amendments that kind of go together, and that's the Ninth and Tenth Amendment. Mm -hmm. And you work at the Tenth Amendment Center, so clearly these are very important amendments, um, especially the Tenth. What is the importance of them? And and I think this sort of in some ways leads to the next conversation that we'll have, not in conversation, next topic we'll talk about in this conversation, uh, which has to do with nullification. So yeah. take us from from the Ninth and Tenth Amendments and and what what they do to 
what do we actually do with this whole constitutionality question? Right. So the Ninth and Tenth Amendment are what, in legal parlance, are called rules of construction. They don't actually do anything. They just tell you how to read the document. So the Ninth Amendment essentially was attached to the Bill of Rights because there was a lot of concern that if we list certain rights that the federal government can't infringe on, then that might be construed that, oh, well, we can violate these rights that weren't listed. The Ninth Amendment, in in effect, just says, just because we didn't list a particular right doesn't mean the federal government has the power to violate that right or infringe on that right. The Tenth Amendment is kind of the flip side of that. It basically just says that any power that is not delegated to the federal government, if it's not explicitly listed, then the federal government cannot exercise that power. So these two amendments are basically two sides of the same coin, and they go back to that implicit construction of the Constitution that we talked about earlier, that only the delegated powers can be exercised, not powers that aren't listed, and anything that's not listed remains with the states and the people. So um, again, key amendments because they make explicit what was implicit in the original Constitution, that the federal government is limited to its delegated powers. It cannot take one step beyond those without moving into the realm of what we call usurpation, which essentially means exercising power that isn't legitimately yours, which is basically the whole entire federal government today. All right, let's talk about nullification then. Nullification is my favorite thing. So over the last two episodes, we have talked about the fact that the federal government is limited to specific powers, right? We talked about uh, that, that key phrase that James Madison used in Federalist 45, the power delegated to the federal government are few and defined. Well, the obvious question is, oh yeah, what are you gonna do about it? That's the obvious question when you put limits on anything. You know, if you tell your kids you cannot do X, what are you going to do about it if they do do X? Pull this this car over to the side of the road. (laughs) Exactly. Don't make me stop this car. Um, That question was brought up during the ratification debates. There were a lot of people, Patrick Henry, chief among them, who uh, were saying that if we give the federal government this power, what's going to stop them from doing more? And James Madison addressed this in Federalist 46. So the idea of nullification, which in a nutshell is simply using state and local power to stop unwarranted federal actions. This blueprint was actually given to us before the Constitution was even ratified by James Madison. And he said this, he said, if the federal government oversteps its bounds, if it does what he called an unwarrantable act. We'd call that unconstitutional. Or interestingly, he said even a warrantable act, a constitutional act that happens to be unpopular. He said the means of opposition are powerful and at hand. And then he listed some things that states could do to hold the federal government in check. And he said some things that we would think of, you know, the governors could protest and and, uh, things like that. But the chief thing, the most important thing that he listed was a refusal to cooperate with officers of the union. Those were the exact words that he used. He suggested that if the federal government does something that's unwarrantable or even unpopular, that we could oppose it by refusing to cooperate with 
officers of the union. He said this would impose impediments if a single state did it. He said if multiple states did it, it would create obstructions which the federal government would hardly be willing to endure. Again, his exact words. So what does this mean? Well, it means saying no. When the federal government says we're going to have federal gun control, the state can say, you know what, we're not going to help you enforce it. When the federal government says we're going to have prohibition on marijuana, a state can say, you know what, we're going to have medical marijuana whether you want prohibition or not. The problem that the federal government has is a resource and personnel problem. It does not have the personnel or resources to enforce all of its laws or implement all of its program without state and local assistance. It's interesting, back in one of the government shutdowns, I think it was maybe 2013, it was when Obama was president, uh, and it was one of the longer ones. And the National Government As- Governors Association actually said this, that the federal government depends on state action for virtually everything that it does. When the state simply says no, it doesn't get done. We've seen this vividly with marijuana. States have legalized medical marijuana in 33 states. They've legalized uh, adult-use marijuana in 11 states. There is nothing that the federal government can do to enforce prohibition when the states quit. 99% of all marijuana arrests happen under state law. So when the states say, you know what, we're not playing along, the federal government is totally undercut. That's what we call nullification or nullification in effect. And this actually goes back to a principle that was laid out by James Madison and Thomas Jefferson in 1798 when we had the first big federal overreach, uh, the Alien and Sedition Acts. The Sedition Act effectively criminalized criticism of the federal government, obviously a violation of the First Amendment. So we were faced. What are you going to do about it? And Thomas Jefferson and James Madison passed these resolutions, and they lay out this blueprint for what we call nullification. I really hope people will buy my book. You can go to constitutionownersmanual.com, and I have a whole chapter on nullification, and I explain this. But if you don't want to buy the book, Google Kentucky and Virginia Resolutions of 1798 and read those two documents. They're not terribly long. They will blow your mind. They are the principle that we can use to regain some control over this federal behemoth by using this refusal to cooperate with officers of the union, by asserting the authority of state and local governments. We can stop federal gun control. We can hinder implementation of national health care. We can stop the unconstitutional drug war. We can even affect foreign policy by doing things like Uh, refusing to send National Guard troops into combat in foreign lands without an official declaration of war. There are all kinds of things we can use this nullification concept for to increase liberty and increase our freedom and decentralize the system further. So it's my favorite thing. I think it is the most powerful tool. If you want to engage in the political system today, don't go vote for president. It's not going to help. Donald Trump's not going to save you. Uh, Joe Biden's not going to save. I can't believe those words just came out of my mouth. Joe Biden's not going to save you. <laughs> those there words is don't no need to politician. Yes, there's no sol- uh, politician that's going to solve the problem. You're not going to get it by calling a congressman or filling out a petition. You vote the bums out. You get new bums. You get the Supreme Court justice, and they continue to expand federal power. All of that Washington D.C. stuff, in my view, is pointless and feckless when it comes to. Uh, really in federal authority. State and locals where it's at, you have some power and control there. Uh, Do nullification at the 10th Amendment Center. We'll help you do that, 10thamendmentcenter.com. 
That was my nullification spiel in a nutshell. You can tell I'm good at that. I've been doing it for like 10 years. You can tell that you're passionate about it. And, (laughs) you know, for a moment I thought, you know, we should have you on for a third episode to talk about nullification. But it just so happens that that was what you came on to talk about way back in episode 84 of this podcast, where Uh that was the topic. That's why you came on. Like it was just like that was your debut. I wonder if I was as, I wonder if my explanation was as good as that little succinct one because I was pretty good. Like I might pull that out and use it. Yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if, if you want to keep listening to Mike talk about nullification, because that just I, I I'll say this: when I heard you say all that, it's like ah, I feel I feel like there's a path forward to some extent because you're right. Like your vote in uh, at the federal government level is pretty. You know, it's mathematically pointless, it's a waste of time, yeah. et cetera. So why not just, you know, focus your efforts more locally, which is kind of the whole point. And we see it work. Yeah. You know, I mean, nobody can say it doesn't work because we've yeah. seen it work with marijuana. There are less people rotting in jails because states have simply ignored the federal government. Does I think that that's a win for liberty. Yeah. Does Barack Obama's policies that were lax about marijuana deserve any credit in that in that regard? Well, here's what's interesting. You know, people perceive Barack Obama as being soft on weed. The fact of the matter is, through the first four years of the Obama administration, he spent more money enforcing federal marijuana laws than Clinton and Bush combined. So enforcement actually ratcheted up. It ratcheted up under Clinton. 1996 was the first year that California, uh, that was the year that California legalized medical marijuana, and it's grown since then. Clinton ratcheted it up. Bush ratcheted it up. Obama ratcheted it up more. And then I think the fact that the states were still ignoring the federal government, that more states were legalizing medical marijuana, I think they saw the writing on the wall. I think Obama's loosening up in the last four years of his term was more of a uh, admission of failure mm-hmm. than it okay. was any kind of principled, I love marijuana. Yeah. Okay. So, so drugs won the war on drugs. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and and again, I think I made this point in in the last no, this was a different interview that I just see everything starts running together. Ultimately, when you talk about something like nullification, ultimately what it comes down to is what is it that we are willing to do and not do? Ultimately, it comes down to us, right? Yeah. Rosa Parks, one of my favorite historical figures because you know what she did? She just said no. She just refused to give up her seat on that bus because it was unjust and she wasn't going to do it. She didn't tear the bus up. You know, she didn't start a shooting revolution. She simply said no. Her action, actually, she ended up going to jail. A lot of people don't know that. She lost her job. She made that sacrifice, that peaceful resistance, that simple no. And it lit a fire that ultimately consumed Jim Crow. Ultimately, it comes down to us. The government cannot do what we don't want it to do. Ultimately, if enough people say no, it's not going to happen. Perfect example is drive down any interstate highway where the, uh, where the speed limit sign says 55 miles per hour. Nobody's freaking driving 55 miles per hour. The cops can pick off somebody here and there, but there is no way they can enforce that law because people don't want to do it. There was no way they were going to enforce a marijuana prohibition because the the mass of population finally decided, you know what? We see value in this plant as a, as a medicine. And we don't think people should be locked in a cage for having a plant. If we get that same shift in 
ideas when it comes to surveillance, when it comes to war, when it comes to all of these things, we can stop the federal government, but it's not going to happen. We can't trust the politicians to do it. We have to make those changes and we have to be willing to sit on that bus and say, daggone it, I'm not getting up. That was the thing. You know, people don't realize the sacrifices that the marijuana people went through in California in the early days of medical marijuana there. The federal government was raiding those marijuana dispensaries daily. They'd raid them, they'd tell people off to jail, and they would open them back up the next, uh, that same day because people were that committed to it. I don't see that kind of commitment to liberty in a lot of people. And, you know, I'll be honest, sometimes I do good at talking on a microphone. Uh, I'm not, maybe not as good as not giving up my seat on the bus, but that's really what we need. So uh, there's another rant for today. Oh, no, that's good. We can we can end there because, Mike, I think that is inspiring for us to, you know, be able to uh, take that take that to heart, um, but also, like, you know, just evaluate what, what it is that we're doing in our own lives that is saying no to injustice, especially injustice, you know, uh, from the government. So, well, I want to thank you so much for your time uh, giving giving us two episodes for for our podcast. This is this is great. It's always always a pleasure to uh, get on the microphone and be sarcastic on both sides with you, Mike, <laughs> and talk about serious things. Also, no, it was fun, and and uh, and I hope I hope people will will find some valuable information and and some things to think about. And I hope I didn't make the incorporationist too mad at me. You can send <laughs> you can send hate mail to Doug. Okay. Uh, so what is it, constitutionownersmanual.com? That's where you can find all things on the book. It's available on Kindle. It's available on paperback or in paperback. And uh, there's also a link there if you want a signed copy. It'll cost you just a tad more, but I'll send it to you for free. Awesome. Uh, so no shipping on it. But yeah, all of that's at constitutionownersmanual.com. All right. Thanks again for joining us, Mike. Thanks, sir. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. So let's talk about the the right to bear arms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> this is terrible. I can't, <laughs> I can't not think of that shirt that has a guy with, with a bear arm. I you thought of this. Talking? I thought of this same, exact same thing. Yes, I absolutely know what you're talking about. Bear oh arms. Oh my gosh! All right. <laughs> well, that went off the rails fast, didn't it? We didn't even get to talk about it. Oh my gosh, I'm so like, oh man. This should be a blooper reel at the end of this episode. Hey podcast listeners, since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. 
To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com.